0: Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that You are so gracious and kind to us that You would give us Your Word, even in a fantastic narrative like we see here in Acts 27, in order to instruct us, to encourage us, to rebuke us if necessary. And we ask, Lord, that You would, by Your Spirit, do that this morning to all those who have gathered here. We will see, Father, from this passage that... Those who do not know you lack the wisdom to listen to a man who did. We will see, Father, that even in our foolishness, you, through Christ, remain faithful to us. I ask, Father, that you would cause us to be wise this morning, that we would not be a foolish people, that we would desire to know your word, to know your will, to know your son and then walk each and every day in the wisdom and power the Holy Spirit provides. I ask, Lord, that as we are surrounded and sometimes inundated by a culture that thrives on foolishness, that we would not be of like kind. But instead, Father, through us, out of our love for Christ, You would enable the lost in our mission field to see, to repent, and to believe. I pray right now, Father, that you would exalt Christ. That this time of teaching would make much of Him. And in glorifying Him, Father, we would be rightly drawn to Him. Rightly moved to the cross. And desire above all else to live holy lives. Pleasing to you. Father, use this passage in this most extraordinary story. To awaken our hearts to the storms that we are in right now. And cause us, if you would, to cling to Christ. To hold on to Christ with all our might, knowing that He is faithful and true, and will certainly bring us through. I praise you for this gathering. I pray, Lord, that you would bless it by your Spirit. Make us eager to hear, and as we prayed earlier this morning, eager to do. In Christ's holy name, amen. Acts chapter 27. You only have two chapters left in this most extraordinary tale. I hope that you're not sad. I'm a bit sad. Every time I get near the end of a book we've spent a lot of time in, I'm sad about it. Um, We've spent a lot of time with Peter and Paul and some of the others, and I hope you've enjoyed the time. I hope it's been edifying for you. It has been for me. The title of the sermon today is Wisdom That Saves, and I hope that that doesn't turn you off. You know, there's a tendency when we talk about wisdom to just kind of pull back as though we don't need to hear it because we're already wise. Um, Well, that would be a very unwise position to take. Uh, Several years ago, we had a young man here at our church who shipwrecked his faith due in part to a lack of wisdom. Uh, He was active in the church. He was evangelizing on his college campus. He was even bringing multitudes to the church. I, I would argue That he was a great encouragement to us all. But then, over a period of several months, he started making several poor choices. Choices that were contrary to the wise counsel given by his brothers and sisters here in Christ. He slowly pulled away from his discipleship group. He stopped coming to community groups. He stopped spending time in the Word and prayer. He started working way too many hours, sometimes on Sundays, and then a lot on Sundays. And eventually, he stopped gathering with us all together. His faith turned to skepticism, and now he has forsaken Christ. He shipwrecked his faith. He was surrounded by people who loved him and surrounded by people who spoke the word and truth of God into his life. Wise counsel was, was received, and it was summarily rejected. My beloved, this morning in the passage, we will see... If you have ears to hear, the consequences of those who do not take the wise counsel of godly, righteous men like the Apostle Paul. And you will also see, I pray even more so, God's faithfulness to redeem even fools in the faith like ourselves. So we pick up here in Acts 27. Paul had spent two years in Caesarea. He had stood a quasi-trial. We would call them really hearing because they really weren't trials before two governors, Governor Felix and then Governor Festus. And finally, he's making his way to Rome. If you remember, he had been charged falsely for starting riots and desecrating the temple and teaching all kinds of supposed heresies that were in contradiction, supposedly, to the Jewish teachings. And Paul knew he wasn't going to get a fair trial in Caesarea, so as a Roman citizen, he appealed the case to Caesar to go to Rome to be heard in the court of Caesar. He had that right, and he not only exercised it because he realized that he wasn't going to get a fair trial in Caesarea, but he also knew that God wanted him to go to Rome to proclaim Christ. So he was, he was going there primarily as a missionary. So as we begin our journey to Rome, you're going to see it's a no small task to get him there. So we join Paul this morning along with Luke and a few others, and I have a single simple prayer that in hearing this passage preached, we will become wiser as a church. Individually and collectively, we will become wiser. And in our wisdom, we will see Christ as our only hope in life and in death. What a great goal that is. By God's grace, we will achieve it in the Spirit. Amen? Alright, so let's do that this morning by looking at Three points. Number one, wisdom offered. Number two, wisdom spurned. And number three, wisdom that saves. Wisdom offered, wisdom spurned, and wisdom that saves. The theme of the sermon is simple. Christ, your only hope in the storms of life and death. Christ is your only hope in the storms of life and death. Point number one, wisdom offered. Look at verse 1. Acts 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So Paul, along with other Roman prisoners, is put under the care of a Roman centurion by the name of Julius. And they leave Caesarea, and they board a coastal vessel. Remember, this was not one that was going to go out to deep sea, but a coastal vessel. And they sail along the southern coast of what is modern-day Turkey. Aristarchus, if you remember, he was one who accompanied the Apostle Paul in bringing the relief offering to Jerusalem. He, along with Luke, joined Paul on this journey to Rome. I wonder at times, the dialogues preceding this journey, how excited they must have been to be able to get to go with Paul to Rome. I mean, this was the capital of the Western world. I don't imagine they had any idea what they were in for. Look at verse 3. The next day we put in, they, they landed, that's a term for landing, in Sidon. Now, Sidon was 70 miles north of Caesarea, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So Julius allows Paul and Aristarchus and Luke to actually go ashore and visit some of the Christians that were there in Sidon and be ministered to by them. It's a very sweet moment. It gives us an indication not only of the heart of Julius, but also his trust in the apostle that he wasn't going to flee. It was a direct departure from the rules as a centurion soldier to allow them to go out and then come back freely. But Paul's character uh, was proven to be true. Look at verse 4. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us, verse 5, and we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. We came to Myra in Lycia. So Paul's ship is heading west. they got to go west to get to Rome, but the winds are coming out of the west or the northwest, and so they're they're not making good headway. It says that the winds were against them. And so when it said they, they sailed under the Lee of Cyprus, that was a, a technique that sailors used to use a land block like an island to block the wind from preventing them from going their way. So they go, they go under the Lee of Cyprus in order to find shelter. And it, it takes a long time, several days, maybe weeks, to go 500 miles, which wasn't a long distance from a nautical sense. To get from um, Caesarea over to Myra, it took about 500 miles. And there they were going to pick up a larger ship because at that point in time they wanted to literally head straight across the Mediterranean Sea in order to get to Italy, which was another 800 miles or so. And that was the generally pr- planned route for most of the cargo ships that went east to west at that time. It was, they, would, they would actually sail north of the island of Crete, just under Corinth, and they would shoot straight across to Italy. It was almost a direct route. Look at verse 6. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Snidus. Now Snidus was one of the most southwestern ports in Turkey. uh, And it is there they realized they're not going to be able to just go due west. They've got to come up with another plan. Look at the latter part of verse 7. And as the wind did not allow us to go further west, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Solomon. So they headed southwest instead, and they got under the island of Crete, thinking that would provide, again, some protection from the wind. So rather than heading straight across the Mediterranean as they had planned, they have to deviate and head south. This proved to be a catastrophic mistake. Look at verse 8. Coasting along it, speaking of the island of Crete, with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens, near which was the city of Lycia. So due to unfavorable winds, getting from Caesarea, where they started their journey, to Fairhaven's had taken several weeks. and The normal time would have been several days. So by now, it's late in the year, sometime post-mid-September and before early November. And at that point in time, all open sea navigation on the Mediterranean um, was ceased. Between mid-November and mid-March, they would stop navigation because it was winter time and it was just too dangerous. Too many, the winds were treacherous, the waves were treacherous, and a lot of ships were lost during that time. Look at verse 9. Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, mid-September or so, was already over. Paul advised them, verse 10, saying, "'Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives.'" So given the opportunity to speak on the matter, now the Apostle Paul before this moment had already been shipwrecked three times. So he knows what it's like to be out at sea when the conditions are not favorable. And so Paul advises them, stay here in Fair Havens, wait until spring comes, and then we'll make our way to Sicily, to Italy. Now most commentators do not believe that Uh, Verse 10 was spoken prophetically by Paul. It was simply his counsel being given as someone who was experienced being at sea, unlike we'll see in verse 22 where he was speaking prophetically. So he's giving wise counsel, and he says, listen, to continue is foolhardy. We may lose the ship, the cargo, but most importantly, we may lose every life on board, which was not uncommon in those particular seas. Julius and the others, they agree, Julius the Centurion, who, was, who actually he was in charge of the ship at that point in time, making decisions. They agree in part and they realize they're not going to get to Rome, not before winter. Um, but they also don't think it's wise to stare in fair, stay in fair heavens. And so they speak with the, the captain of the ship and the owner of the ship, and they decide that they're going to try to make it six miles west to a better port they think, called Phoenix. Look at verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor, Fair Havens was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now there's great debate whether or not Havens was or was not a good place to stay. Most argue today that it was just fine. So they had compelling reason to go for for other more self-centered reasons. Paul offers wise counsel based upon the predictable dangers, putting out to sea again, but Julius listens to the captain and to the ship's owner and rejects the wisdom of Paul, a righteous man, for chance. Did you notice that the latter part of verse 12? The majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow, maybe, maybe they could get they could reach phoenix the greek literally says if somehow they might be able to by chance in other words julius and the captain and the owner of the ship they were willing to take a gamble they were willing to gamble the lives of all those on board my beloved paul considered the risks wisely particularly the very real possibility of everyone on board perishing and so he offers wise counsel out of his desire to safeguard human life Right, that would make sense. That would be the most important issue at hand, the 276 souls on board that ship. The others were self-motivated. Julius, no doubt, getting his prisoners to Rome in a timely manner, not allowing the ship to be destroyed, possibly in fair havens. The ship owner, obviously wanting to safeguard his ship and the cargo, that was his moneymaker, and likely the captain, his reputation. And so, out of their selfish desires, rather than listening to Paul and being concerned for human life, they forsake wisdom for chance, and they put everything, the ship, the cargo, and every soul on board in grave danger. Self-interest, my beloved, often is the thing that prevents us from listening to wise counsel. I would argue that most of us, when we hear counsel that's wise, and we have an interest contrary to that, want to go with what we're most interested in. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 12, words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. Psalm thirty seven thirty: the mouths of the righteous utter wisdom and their tongues speak what is just. Paul was a godly, just man and he valued what God valued and so in this situation, for example, the sanctity of life was more important to him, all 276 souls on board, were more important to him than the ship or its cargo. And so, it should have taken precedence over the desires of Julius and the others. Paul's counsel to stay in Fair Havens was wise counsel from a righteous man, but they did not listen. And yet, my beloved, if we are willing to be honest as we hear this story, if we're willing to be transparent with our own hearts this morning, I believe that we often make the same mistake. We don't seek out counsel as Westerners, let alone listen to the wise counsel that's given to us by brothers and sisters in Christ, even in our own church. We don't listen. Even when we, we know what they're saying is true, we still have a tendency to go with our fleshly desires. That's the way we've been raised. As Westerners, most major decisions we make, we make alone. And we think we have the right to make it alone, and we think it's wise to make it alone alone. We don't listen to those who give us counsel unless they're telling us exactly what we want to hear. How many of our brothers and sisters, my beloved, over the past two years here in this little church have made major life decisions, taking new jobs, moving out of state, changing churches without seeking the counsel of other Christians? How many? Too many. How often do we, my beloved, receive counsel, wise counsel, Every single week, from the pulpit, from God's word, from one another, we receive the counsel. Be in your word. Be in prayer. Receive counsel from others. Share the gospel with the lost. Make disciples. Love your spouse. Raise your children in the faith. We hear this wise counsel over and over. We know it to be true. And yet how often do our self-interest trump all those true statements? There's another part of us if we're willing to be honest, our self-serving hearts that don't want good godly counsel. We don't want people speaking truth into our lives. And so we don't ask for it. And if we ask for it, we're going to hold it at bay because we have that right because we're Americans. Like Julius and the others, we think the risk is worth it. That living contrary to the wisdom of God won't be that bad. That we can make the gamble. Proverbs 13 Verses 13 and 14, listen with all your might. Whoever scorns instruction will pay for it. Whoever scorns instruction will pay for it. But whoever respects a command is rewarded. Verse 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. So first I pray that we see from the beginning of Paul's journey the vital importance of both getting and heeding the wisdom of Christians of those who know God, who are indwelt by the Spirit and have the Word of God to guide them. What happens if we refuse, though? What happens if we don't seek it out and if we get it, we don't submit to it? What if we continue to live doing what we think is best in our own eyes, living in a bubble? Point number two, wisdom spurned. Proverbs 14, 12, one you know well says, there is a way that seems right to a man But its end is the way to death. Look at verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they could get going again, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. Now listen, Phoenix is only six miles from Fairhaven. Six miles west. That's a short distance for any ship, even even a coastal ship, to make. So they take off. Verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. The the English translation doesn't do us a favor. This this is a hurricane. Some of the peaks on the island of Crete are over 7,000 feet. And so a northeastern wind coming off those peaks, coming down and hitting that ship with hurricane-like force. The Mediterranean sailors called them the Gregale. Sounds like some mythical monster, doesn't it? The Gregale. It was a deadly winter storm that took ships, cargo, and crew to a watery grave frequently. The winds were so strong that they could not even hoist their sails lest the sails be torn to shreds by the strength of the whims so they lowered the sails they gave way to it and they were driven along by the Gregale as the Gregale decreed look at verse 16 running under the lee of a small island called Kadasoli they're trying to find protection now from another island now we're 25 miles off coast southwest they were trying to get six miles due west they're now 25 miles out to sea things are not good it says, we manage with difficulty to secure the ship's boats. Those are the lifeboats. boats. So they're off course. They're in danger of being overtaken by the storm. And so the crew goes into emergency action. They're now all working very hard to make sure the ship doesn't sink. One of the first things they do is they bring up the lifeboats, they empty them with water, and they secure them. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, hoisting up these boats, they use supports to undergird the ship. They ran cables both underneath and some would run them around to keep the ship from breaking up. In the storm, latter part of verse 17. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Citrus, on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. So, the sandbars of Sirtis were on the northern coast of North Africa, and they were known in that area to be infamous for both stranding and destroying ship and sailor. The sandbars of Sirtis were miles away from anybody and everything. And if you got stranded there, you couldn't be rescued. There was no helicopter to come in and bring you out. And so the sailor's axiom would be true if they landed there. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. So their fear was dying by dehydration, one of the worst ways a sailor could die. So they were doing everything to avoid that. So Luke tells us they lowered the gear, and that was either the main sail they lowered or a drift anchor, and then the boat was it was still being pulled by the storm but at a slower rate on day 2 of the storm they started to throw the cargo overboard to lighten the load look at verse 18 since we were violently storm tossed they began the next day to jettison the cargo on day 3 so desperate that they might sink they began throwing some of the heavier non-essential pieces of equipment and furniture overboard verse 19 On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. They were trying every sailor's trick in the book to keep the boat afloat. But things continued to worsen. Look at verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared now for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. That's a way of saying the hurricane did not let up. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So this is prior to the use of compasses at sea. And so their primary means of navigation was celestial, getting from point A to point B. But they can't do that because they're now under cloud cover for many days. They have no control of the ship. They have no idea where they are. They have no idea where they're going. They can't control where they're going. And so finally Luke tells us at the latter part of verse 20, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. The 276 souls on board had resigned to the fact that they were going to die at sea. A death at sea. This is the low point of the story. They're in complete and total despair. Now their folly, putting out to sea in hazardous conditions instead of heeding Paul's wise counsel to stay put, had led them to death's door. But even as they stood on the brink of death, Luke's rendering of the story is intended, I believe, and most of the commentators do as well, to bring us to hope in Christ. John Polhill, in his commentary on Acts, he writes this, listen. He said, Other ancient sea narratives speak of giving up all hope in the midst of a storm, but Luke put it in a special way, saying that they gave up hope of being saved. Obviously, Polhill writes, the reference is to their salvation from death at sea. But for a Christian reader, saved is a term with special meaning. One wonders if Luke did not intend at least a mild symbolic meaning. I, I believe it was less than mild. I believe that he intended us to see their salvation in remaining with Christ and I'll show you that in our last point. But intended or not, it is unmistakable how often we find ourselves in perilous decisions because of our foolish choices. By refusing to seek out The wise counsel of our brothers and sisters in Christ by refusing to listen to the counsel when they give it. For many of us, it's just not seeking to know the wisdom of God according to His Word, not spending time in His Word, not being devoted to it, not meditating on it. You do these things long enough, my beloved, you avoid the wisdom of the counsel of your brothers and sisters and you avoid the wisdom that God brings us through His Word, and you are guaranteed to find yourself in perilous waters, driven along by the winds of this world or stranded on the spiritual sandbars of Certus. And grievously, instead of turning to God, His Word, or other Christians for help, when we find ourselves in trouble, we, like our sailors, take extreme measures on our own We oftentimes will turn to medication or self-help gurus. We seek counsel from worldly experts instead of brothers and sisters in Christ. Oftentimes in the midst of the storm, and you know this all too well, you attempt to numb the pain through self-indulgence, food, sex, entertainment, sleep, whatever your vice is, all vain attempts at keeping your ship afloat. And when things get really bad and completely desperate, Like our sailors, you surrender, become hopeless, and turn to sin. Now before you dismiss the possibility of your life being shipwrecked by a consistent forsaking of wisdom, if you think that you're too wise to do that, then I want to offer you two warnings right now. First, you must know and probably already do, pride is the great enemy of living wisely. And if you think you're too wise for this to ever happen to you, then pride is already an issue in your heart. You see, when you truly become wise, I love the way Tim Keller put this. He said, you are that person running down the street saying, I'm a fool, I'm a fool, I need wisdom. That's a great picture. When you truly become wise, you realize how desperately you need God, God's Word, and God's people to keep you on the path of righteousness. As Westerners, we have been told now for decades that we don't need anyone, that we can go it alone. Even in the church, my beloved, it's grievous in the West how often we teach and model an autonomous Christianity. We pay lip service to covenant membership, And we talk about the importance of biblical community. But our lives, if we're truthful, tell a different story. In our pride, isolation and independence, not community and mutual dependence, is our way of life. That's how we live, even as Christians. In our pride, we turn a blind eye to passages like Hebrew 3.13, where we're called to encourage one another how often? Daily. As long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, so that none of us may shipwreck our lives of faith in Christ. Or we will not listen to Paul's admonition in 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul writes, For God has, destined us, has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that we might live in him. And then he says this, in light of that truth, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Pride is the hindrance of seeking and submitting to wise counsel. And in our pride, we knowingly become fools. Spurgeon put it like this, he said, there is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. Let me say that again. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. In other words, we know better. We know that if we remain isolated outside of God's word, outside of the community of God's people, receiving counsel and submitting to good counsel with other people in our lives, we know we're going to act and live like fools. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. Pride is a real issue, even for us, my beloved. The second danger we face is what I would call incremental foolishness. And what do I mean by that? That's our small daily choices, day after day, week after week, leading to ruin in our lives. Julius and the others, listen, they only needed to get six miles, this little short distance along the southern side of the island of Crete, no big deal, getting from New Haven to Phoenix, a small step but their inability to see the danger even in that short journey placed them at death's doorstep. My beloved, more often than not, our foolishness, our foolishness that leads to significant hardship in our lives, it's not that that one really bad, life-altering decision you made in a moment of passion or desperation. It's the small choices we make daily, the incremental steps we take that lead us away from the Lord, It's those decisions that shape us, who we are, the decisions we make, and the life that we live. That's why wisdom in the Bible, it's not described as a door that you walk through. It's certainly not in our cultural moment described as a pill that you take. Wisdom is described in the Bible as a path, a path that you walk on incrementally, step by step, being faithful in the little things day by day. That's wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 the sage says, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of, of uprightness. And then he says this in verse 12. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. She is your life. My beloved, it's not that, that one piece of cake that you ate that caused the weight problem. It's your day, daily diet, day in and day out. It's not, for most people, it's not going out and spending your money on some, you know, $500,000 card that puts you into a financial crisis. It was your daily decision, day in and day out, buying $6 cups of coffee three times a day, or maybe those Amazon purchases that you just can't resist. Those are the things that lead to financial ruin. Neglect your daily intake of God's Word. Neglect time alone with the Lord in prayer. Neglect regular fellowship, faithful fellowship with the saints week in and week out. Deny yourself the wisdom of your brothers and sisters in Christ. My beloved, even in a church small like this, there is so much wisdom. Do you know that? There's so much wisdom to be had but that requires you seeking it, and then when you receive it, submitting to it if it is truly wise. Do all that, and over time, your heart will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and the things of God, prayer, ministry, evangelism, service, all the things that used to excite you, they'll become drudgery to you and you can rest assured that foolish choices, foolish living and the consequences that flow from that life will be yours. Incremental, step by step, the path of righteousness and wisdom or the path of foolishness are the paths that we make. So first, we've seen one, getting and listening to the wisdom of your brothers and sisters in Christ can keep some of those storms at bay. Number two, when in the midst of the storm, don't try to fix the problem by yourself. Go to God, go to God's Word, and go to God's people to help you make it through. Now, if you've hit point three and you're wondering, well, is there any hope of our being wise? Am I just going to continue through my life as a foolish Christian? Last point, I hope you're still with me. We are called to cling to Christ. Stay close to Christ and you will become a wise Christian. Point number three, wisdom that saves. Look at verse 21. Since they had been food, without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. So the, the storm's at its peak They've lost all sense of direction. The morale is at its lowest. They haven't eaten in many days, not because they're without food. We'll see that next week. But they're so sick and so overwhelmed trying to stay alive. They hadn't had time to repair it, and they certainly don't have an appetite to eat it. Paul stands up at the lowest point, and he says this. Men, you should have listened to me. Now, before you condemn Paul for being a ha-ha, I told you so, that's not why he is making this statement. Paul wants wants to ensure they do not make the same mistake twice because he has another word, this time directly from God, not just his wise counsel, but an angel the Lord had spoken to him and he needs them to listen that they might be saved. Look at verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart. He says, be encouraged for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship. So Paul assures the men that even though the ship Will run aground and the cargo lost, their lives will be spared. Verse 23: For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. So, Paul's words of encouragement were not Paul's inner strength. It wasn't Paul in his will to be strong before these men. It wasn't even his own prophecy. It was the product of the God he belonged to and the God that he worshiped. He's saying, Listen, The Lord Lord whom I serve, whom I belong to, sent an angel, a messenger, and he spoke to me. Now, I guarantee you there wasn't one skeptic on that boat at that moment. Because they needed a word of hope. They needed someone telling them it's going to be okay. So the most staunch atheist on that boat immediately became someone listening about this God that Paul served and belonged to. Look at verse 24. The angel of the Lord said to Paul, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So the angel makes two promises. The first you already know. The angel's only reminding Paul that which he already knew. God had decreed for Paul to get to Rome, so Paul was not going to die on this ship. Paul probably knew that. I don't imagine Paul was even afraid. He's probably seasick along with the rest, but I don't think he was terribly afraid. Because he knew God had decreed for him to stand before Caesar. And what God decrees to take place will take place. So Paul's dying on that ship was not an option. Not that day and not on that ship. But what he says next in the latter part of verse 24 is utterly extraordinary. The angel promises that all on board would be saved too. Now listen to me very carefully. They weren't going to be saved because those 275 other souls on board had to stand before Caesar and testify to Christ as well. God was going to save them because he was going to grant them life because of Paul. Look at the latter part of verse 24. God says to the angel, Behold, God has granted you who? You, Paul, all those who sail with you. In other words, God gave to Paul freely the lives of all those souls on board. This is such an extraordinary statement. God could have just saved Paul and let the rest die. He could have saved Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. We want them to be saved too and let the rest perish for their foolish decision. But what God does here is he gives Paul a gracious gift, no doubt an answer to Paul's prayer. I'm sure Paul was praying fervently for the souls of those on board and he promises to spare the lives of everyone on board who what? Who hears the word and stays with Paul. We're going to see that next week. Everyone who would hear the word from the angel, the word of God, believe it, and stay with Paul on that ship, they too would be saved. In other words, Paul's very presence became for them the life raft. He was the vehicle that was going to get them safely to shore. So in other words, God promised, listen, to save foolish, unrighteous men through the wise, righteous man, Paul. My beloved God, through his word, has made a very similar promise to you if you're in Christ. Not salvation through Paul, but salvation through Paul's Savior, Jesus Christ. God promised to save foolish, unrighteous sinners like us, through the perfectly wise, perfectly righteous Savior, Jesus Christ. This is your hope in life and death. Amen? John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him, that's the Father who sent me, has eternal life. Jesus says he does not come into judgment, but is passed, what? From death to life. That's the hope that we have In Christ, everyone who hears the word of God and puts his trust in the Savior in God's eternal life raft the life raft made for sinner God promises you're not going to die you're not going to be judged even though you shipwrecked your life even though you submitted to sin and have lived in rebellion against me God says I will deliver you through my son the Savior Jesus Christ that is the promise that God makes to all who hear and follow him out of the storm of sin and death. Out of the storms that we've made, the messes that we've made in our own lives. Out of that eternal storm that will come when God comes again in glory. Jesus said this in John six thirty nine. be comforted, saints. This is the will of God, that I shall lose none of all these he has given to me, but raise them up at the last day. Just as God had promised the Apostle Paul, I'm going to give you 275 souls I'm going to grant them life, Paul, to you. He says the same thing to us in Christ. All those that God has given to Jesus, Jesus says, I'm not going to lose one. Not one is going to shipwreck their faith, but I will raise them up on the last day. He is your lifeboat. He is your Savior. He's the one that gets you out of the storm both now and forever. Amen? So all those on the ship of Alexandria who believed God's word and remained with Paul, God promised you will live all those of us who are on the ship of faith who have believed the word of God and we remain in Christ God promises we will live now and we will live forever all those who see Jesus as their only hope in life and death all those I love it God says all those who continue to sail with you Paul every single soul who continues to sail with Jesus all the way to the end you will have eternal life that is God's promise and God is not a liar Now for the unsaved who have yet to experience the extreme suffering in this fallen world I want you to hear God this morning call you to him. If you do not know Christ and life seems easy there is a storm coming. There's a storm unlike any other storm on that day of judgment when Christ comes again in glory. God calls you this morning to repent turn to Christ and be saved by the Savior. If you're unsaved and you have, you're in the midst of a storm and you've tried all the other remedies. You've thrown the cargo off the deck. You've lowered the, the, the sails. You put down the anchor, the drift anchor. And nothing's working. You've tried the medications and the doctors and the self-help gurus and nothing is working. Christ is saying to you, unsaved soul, turn to Christ. Climb upon the ship of faith with Jesus and find relief, true relief now and how long? Forever and never. And for those of you who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, as your eternal life raft, and yet you say this morning, Pastor, I've been in a hurricane for a long, long time. The winds have been against me. Maybe suffering from the consequences of some poor choices you've made or poor choices you've made for much of your life. Or maybe you're just suffering from the, con- from the consequences of the contrary winds of living in a fallen world. Because it can be hard sometimes. The loss of a loved one, constant sickness, chronic pain, depression. Maybe you're struggling just to make ends meet each month or reeling from a failing marriage or wayward child. I want you to listen to this wisdom with all your might. Christ stands this morning ready to receive you. Did you hear that? If you know Christ, He stands this morning ready to receive you. Christ is in the boat with you. Christ is in the midst of the storm with you. He is willing and He is able to comfort you, to heal you, to encourage you, to to heal your, your sea tossed heart. Even if the storm is your own making, Christ still says, Come to me. You're not alone, He is with you. Cling to Him. Cling to him. Paul then says to the crew in verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I, as I have been told, but we must run around, we must run aground on some island. So their adventure is far from over, and we're gonna see that next week as they, they do literally run the ship aground. But for Paul and all those who would hear the word of God through the angel and stay with Paul. He says, be encouraged. Have your heart be strengthened. God's going to do exactly what he promised to do. He's going to deliver us from death, physical death, to life. And the great hope holds true for you if you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sins and attached your anchor, your sail, your ship to Jesus. In Christ, you can take heart this very hour regardless. Now listen, this is, it's easy to say this from the pulpit. It's, it's sometimes harder to hear it. Regardless of the storm that is raging in your life, you can find hope in Christ right now. You can be encouraged because God the Father has secured that hope through the suffering of the Son. By sending Christ to the cross, Jesus endured the eternal northeastern. The tempestuous wrath of God, God's gregale, Christ received in His own body on the cross. The tempest of God's judgment was laid upon Jesus. And just as the darkness covered the skies for many days upon that ship, we know darkness came when Christ was on the cross for three hours. And during those three hours, Christ suffered what we rightly deserved. He indeed was stranded upon the shores of Citrus, and He indeed did thirst. Did He not? Did He not say on the cross, I thirst? The very one who said, I am the living water, whoever drinks of this water I shall give will never die, never thirst again. Separated from the Father, experiencing what we justly deserved so that you can not only drink deeply, from the waters of eternal life but have it forever. Jesus experienced the storms of our foolishness, our rebellion, our sin, he took it upon himself freely to suffer in our place so that everyone, listen, who comes to him and stays with him by faith can endure the storms of this life and the eternal storm to come. Simple, is it not? And yet so glorious. My beloved, Christ knows there will be suffering for you in this life. He knows that. Some caused by your foolishness, some just as a result of living in this fallen world. Either way, the one who suffered in your place calls you to himself. He tells you to come and he tells you to remain, to cling to him, the savior of your soul. This is the greatest wisdom a man can have. If you know nothing else, if you leave here with nothing else, then the wisest thing you can do today, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life is to go to and remain in Jesus. You want to be wise? Christ is the answer to that. Your life in Christ now and forever. Friends, I want to encourage you to avoid some of the storms that result from foolish choices by getting and submitting to the wisdom of your brothers and sisters in Christ here in this very room. Do that. Mitigate or do away with some of the storms in your life due to your foolish choices. And if you find yourself in the midst of the storm, don't be like the sailors taking extreme measures to find your way out alone. Swallow your pride. Lean on God. Lean on his word. And lean on his people to help you get through the storm. And lastly, cling to Christ. Stay close to Christ. Hope in christ regardless of your circumstances no matter how severe they are or how deep that storm gets cling to christ he will he will bring you through he will bring you through god promised to save all those who remain in christ so take heart be encouraged god will do as he promised amen let's pray Heavenly Father, we recognize that many of the storms we endure are our own making. We make foolish choices. We do not seek the counsel of others. And when we receive wisdom, we don't live in accordance with it. I ask, Father, you would make us wise. That you would help us mitigate some of the storms that we would bring upon ourselves by living foolish lives. I pray, Lord, you would cause us to swallow our pride and enable each and every member here in this church to intentionally seek out brothers and sisters, to hear what they have to say, to receive wise counsel, to listen to righteous men and women like the Apostle Paul, that we might not shipwreck our lives. I pray above all else, Father, that in the midst of this storm and the one to come, on that day of judgment, you would cause us to cling to Christ. You promised that you will save all who go to him and stay with him. So do that for us now, Father. Draw us to the Savior. Help us to see the sacrifice that he made. Make him beautiful in our eyes so that we not only want to go to him, but we want to remain with him forever and ever. Father, I pray you would make much of your son that we might make much of him too. I praise you so much for this passage and our opportunity to look at it this morning. I pray that it would not fall upon deaf ears, but that you would make yourself known through it. I ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.